And there are going to be things that you do and you do with the right intention of heart for people and they're going to take them wrong. There's going to be many a time when you're going to marvel at their unbelief too. You're going to marvel at their unbelief. You're going to marvel at how they can take something which is good and pure and right and accuse you of having wrong and selfish motives. Now as we get in this session, by the way, one of the things they didn't like about Mr. Solzhenitsyn was he believed in the incipiency of the will. He believed in the incipiency of the will. So did Dostoevsky, the great novelist. Let me show you what I found in an intellectual journal here recently. That these two men agreed upon and one of the reasons why they were so persecuted in Russia. Listen to this. This is what they said. Man is not a finite and determined number on which any reliable calculation can be based. Otherwise, you can't predict what he's going to do. Man is free, and therefore capable of violating any advanced definition of him. Do you get that? Now, that's what souls and Nitsen believed with all his heart. So did Dostoevsky. Let me read it to you again. Man is not a finite and determined number on which any reliable calculation can be based. See, even in sociology, they can predict what a group will do, but not what any one person in that group. Like, for instance, there may be 600 drunks over here. They may predict that tomorrow that crowd's going to get drunk again, but they can't predict it 600. It may be 599 tomorrow. One of them may get a little sense in his head. Do you get that? Now, even the sociologists know that. It's about time the people of God learn this. Now, in this session, we're going to still stay on the image of God. Man being made in the image of God. Now, I said to you, it's a twofold image. First, it's an image of endowments. And we saw that those endowments were intellect, emotions, or sensibilities, will, conscience, and the ability to perceive various relationships. Now we are going to talk about the attitude and disposition of heart that God designed into or created into man when he made man. Now I'd like for you to notice this slide very closely. Adam and Eve were created with the right attitude and disposition of heart that dictated to them how they ought to act in any given situation. This is why you didn't have a system of law in the garden. There was no Ten Commandments in the garden. For this simple reason, they were created with a right attitude and disposition of heart. Now, if you have a right attitude and disposition of heart, you don't need the Fifth Commandment, which says, Honor thy father and thy mother, and so shall thy days be long upon the earth. If you have a right attitude and disposition of heart, you'll honor, you'll cherish, you'll love, and you'll obey your parents. You really will. You won't need that commandment. If you have a right attitude and disposition of heart, you won't steal from your fellow man, will you? You will not covet what he has. Now, to covet means to set your heart upon, to pant after. Well, there is so much poor teaching in this area of coveting. Let me, let me give you an example. 
I went to a certain theological school that they'd teach you that if you even looked at something and admired it, you coveted it. And that's, that's so far from the truth of this. And I lived in this hotel, and I was the chief engineer of a big firm in the city of Chicago. And I was living very, very sacrificially, supporting a lot of missionaries. I didn't even have a car. I used to say I had a $25,000 car. I rode to work in a bus. <laughs> well, it's all now you look at, isn't it? I'd have a good time of prayer in my hotel room. I'd go to get on the bus, and as I came out of the hotel, there'd set a pink Cadillac convertible. I'd look at that thing, and I'd say, sinned again, I'm not even to work. <laughs> See, I was so poorly taught. Oh, I should have gone back to those schools and asked for my money back. <laughs> really, they were terrible. See, I was taught if you looked at something and you admired it, even thought you'd like to have it, and you had coveted it. No, 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 that's not the meaning of covet. To covet means to set your heart upon, to pant after it. I hadn't set my heart upon this Cadillac convertible. If I had, I'd have bought one two months' wages. I didn't pant after it. That's like a man panting after a woman. Or as a heart panteth after the roll. No, I hadn't. And you see, my poor teaching robbed me of my what? My victory. My victory. Now, I could look at a Cadillac convertible, and I got so I could. I could walk up to them, rub them off, and go, <sighs> say, Lord, bless the guy that's got it. <laughs> Lord, bless the fellow that's got it. I didn't set my heart upon it. I thought it'd be nice to have one, right? Years later, I had several of them given to me. Yeah, brand spanking new ones. So having the right attitude of heart towards these things really helps, doesn't it? So that fellow's got it and you don't have it, you say, Lord bless him, Lord bless him. Because I was riding in my $25,000 car with Jesus to work, and that's better than riding to work in a Cadillac by yourself. <laughs> Isn't it? Why, sure it is. If you have a right attitude and a right disposition of heart, you'll not use God's holy name in vain. If you have a right attitude and disposition of heart, you'll not have other gods. No, no. You'll have the God. Now, they didn't need a system of law in the garden because they were created with a right attitude and disposition of heart. It dictated how they ought to act. Now, it didn't cause them to act. It just told them how they ought to act. You see that? Now, you have to get this straight or you'll never understand moral law because we got more people misteaching moral law than four worlds could assimilate or ought to have. Now, just to see, though, if they let God be God and man be man, God gave them, get this, one little teeny weeny law in the garden. Now, isn't that lenient? These people that make God out in the Old Testament to be hard and rigid and austere, they just are not reading their Bible. That's not the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is no different than the God in the New Testament. There's absolutely none. And when we get to the atonement, I'm going to show you that when Jesus died, it did not render God merciful. It was an expression of his mercy. <laughs> There's no change in God before the atonement or after the atonement. It was an expression of his mercy. He didn't all at once become forgiving. Every morning when I drive to work, 
when I'm home, which is very rare. I turn on to Guilford and I put my hand up and I say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. If somebody's riding alongside me and listening to me talking, I think I don't have all my ball bearings, you know. <laughs> but I'm talking to the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who healeth all thy diseases and forgiveth all thine iniquities, who redeemeth thy life from destruction and crowneth thee with loving kindness. And the next phrase, I want to cry when I say it. Crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. You get that? Tender mercies. That's the God of the Old Testament. Tender. That's the God of the New Testament too. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. You get me aside, I'll explain what that means. Like the eagles. That takes a long time. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all of them that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses. Get that. His ways unto Moses. There's a terrible thing taught in the United States. It says, when you get down and pray, wipe your mind clean because your ways are not God's ways and your thoughts are not his. That's taken it completely out of context. You go back in Isaiah 55. God says, your ways are not my ways, your, your thoughts are not. But that's wicked and sinful people. The Bible says God made known his ways unto Moses and he wants to make known his ways unto you too. Don't you dare get down and wipe your mind clear. That's Hinduism, in case you don't know it. Hinduism, we don't need that. God intends for you to keep that mind years under control. Don't go putting any blanks out like that. No, that's ridiculous teaching. Ridiculous. Little boy teaching. I haven't really studied their lessons. Now, let's go a little further. He gave them one little teeny weeny law. Isn't that lenient? Just to see if they'd let God be God and man be man. Now, my dear friends, I'm going to show you in a little while on some other slides that you never have a law unless you have sanctions. A law without sanctions is not law, it's mere advice. Now, the Ten Commandments are not advice. They are commandments, and they have sanctions connected with them. So was this first law in the garden. Only one. And that's just to see if man will let God be God and man be man. Man is never happy when he tries to be God because he's not God. He's made in the image of God. Now, but they had the responsibility of tending the garden, didn't they? Man just doesn't seem to like responsibility because he never thought it through. Did you know every responsibility we have in this life is good for us? If you fulfill them, I'm going to show you later, you get good consequences. If you don't fulfill them, you get penalties in the way of consequences. So your responsibilities are good for you. They're good for you. Let me give you an example. Here I was married, two daughters, a son. I'm still married, same woman. Now, I had the responsibility of putting a roof over their head, didn't I? Putting clothes on their feet, shirt on their back, and everything like that. I admit that shoes would go on the feet, but uh, <laughs> just think. I had the responsibility also of raising them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That was my responsibility, and I did my dead-level best to do that. And now I can reap the fruits of that. My kids come home and they love to come home and they can cry when they leave. I enjoy being with my children, they enjoy being with me. 
I enjoy being with my wife, she enjoys being with me. Why? I have assumed and fulfilled my responsibilities and so has she. Never a happy marriage anywhere where both of them don't fulfill their responsibilities, one to the other. Now the first law, there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.17. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Here's the first law ever given in the world, moral law. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat thereof, for the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, friends, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to see if you really can think. I want to ask you this question. Please notice very carefully how I word this question. What were the sanctions connected with the first law given in the garden, the first and only law given in the garden? What were the sanctions connected with that first law given in the garden? Can somebody tell me? Now you're all speaking below whisper, huh? That's all right. I know you've been raised in churches where you weren't supposed to think. You're supposed to feel. That's terrible. It's terrible. You're half right. Half right. Half right. Only half. Remember, I said, now listen. Re listen real closely, friends. <laughs> the best thinkers in this world ought to be God's people. Is that right? Yeah. The Spirit of God deals with and dwells within. They are the, ought to be the best. So I make no excuses to really get you to think. Because you're going to go out in a world where there's thinking people, not feeling people, thinking people. If you get truth in them, they'll feel. But you can get emotions in them and, without thinking, and that'll do them no good. Who had their hands up on here? Don't you people know the difference between singular and plural? Now let me, let me give it to you again. What were the sanctions? What is that, singular or plural? plural. All right, let me say it again. What were the sanctions connected with the first law in the garden? You're, you're, you're right, but I can't hear you. You're, you're, you're afraid you're not saying it right. So I'm telling you, you're saying it right, but to keep on going so we can all hear. That's true. You left out one word, though. Life. Life. But what kind of life? Spiritual life, see? They've already got physical, right? Spiritual life. All right, they obeyed. It have what? Life. Life. Spiritual life. If they disobey, they're going to get what? Spiritual death. Spiritual death. See, you see what I mean by sanctions? That's plural. There's no, you never have a law unless you have sanctions connected with it. A law without sanctions is not law, it's mere advice. But God doesn't give advice in moral law. That's, you find advice in, in the book of Proverbs. Now, the trouble with we poor mortals is that when someone gives us a half-truth, we always get a hold of the wrong half. 
We just, we are marvels at that. So Satan comes along and says, Now, go ahead and eat of the tree, for thou shalt not surely die, for your eyes will be open and you shall be as gods. Now he had some truth in there. What was the truth? Their eyes were open. Ah, but were they gods? No. No, so here we are. We get a hold of the wrong half, don't we? So... The biggest tragedy, tragedy of all time. Man didn't choose to remain in that wonderful relationship where God came down in the cool of the evening and had fellowship with them. This relationship here, like a parent with his child. Like a parent with his child. My kids used to come and jump in my lap and sit there and put their arm around me. I say, what do you want? Because most of the time kids want something. My daughter said, Daddy, I don't want anything. I just want to sit here. I just want to sit here. That's what you live for in your kids. I just want to sit here. Now you're going to see that didn't come easy. That didn't come easy because what I'm going to teach you here, I taught my kids. Like, for instance, when you do something wrong, there's consequences connected with it. And you've got to teach this to children. There's good consequences and there's bad consequences we're going to see here in just a little bit. Like, for instance, I came home one night from work about 6 o'clock. We sat down to eat and my, after we prayed, my wife said, Honey, Nancy lied to me just before you got home. I said, Well, Nancy, I'm going to have to teach you the consequences of sinning. That's a sin to lie. And after dinner, you don't go out and play. You go in your bedroom, and Daddy's going to come in and show you the consequences of lying. Now, that little Nancy, she ate like a bird. I tell you, she could have lived on bird seed. But I want to tell you, this night, she ate everything in sight. I thought she was going to eat till 8 o'clock. <laughs> Boy, did she eat. She's going to outweigh the old man, see? <laughs> she don't want to go in that bedroom because Dad's going to come in that bedroom. Finally, after she's eaten everything, she gets up and she says, Bye, Mom and Dad, I'm going over to Morris's and play. I said, No, you're not. You're going in your bedroom, you're going to lay down, and your daddy's coming in there to show you the consequences of lying. So in about five minutes, I went in there, and here she is. She's laying down on the bed, face down, and she looks up at me, and she's making Helen Hayes look like a little theater. <laughs> Tears are running down her face. <laughs> and boy, is she really trying to melt the old man. And she's doing a pretty good job. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, Now, honey, you've sinned. God has given you to me to raise for him, to teach and to train. And I must show you the consequences of lying. Now, if I don't show you, then I'm going to get the consequences from God. Somebody ought to tell that to parents. You can get the consequences for your kids' sin if you don't have enough sense to teach them and train them, right? Many broken-hearted parents today like that because they didn't have enough nerve to spank their kid or didn't love them enough. I said, now, honey, if I don't give you the consequences, God is going to give me the consequences. Just who ought to get the consequences here? Here's what she said. could just hardly hear it. And she can yell as loud as any of you girl. So she had on what you call 
You call them Levi's, we call them overhauls. <laughs> we paid a buck fifteen for them, they call them Levi's, you pay thirty-two dollars. They tear a hole in the seat of the pants, you pay thirty-eight. You throw bleach on them, you pay forty-five. Doesn't it cost a lot of money to look poor? <laughs> sure costs a lot of money to look poor. I pulls her little britches down, and there's a part of the anatomy made just for this. And I reached down, and I went like this. I believe in spankings, not beatings. Get that? I went like that. She let out a blood-curdling yell. You'd have thought Geronimo was coming over the hill. Right over there. Oh, it was the most blood-curdling, pathetic thing you ever heard. You'd think I'd hit her with a pitchfork. And I reached down, I, like this again. Oh, here's another one. Oh, this was so terrible. I'm glad there was no child abuse experts around there. I'd have wound up right in the old crossbar hotel, just sure as you're an inch high. And I hit her the third time like that. Oh, here it is again. And I hit her like this, and oh, this was awful. And I pulled her little britches up. I went in, I laid down on my bed. I had to teach in one of our colleges there that night. And I had to get a little rest. And about 15 minutes later, I hear little footsteps coming down the hall. And she come in. She laid down, snuggled up beside me. And she said, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. Well, I taught that night, and the next night I had to teach, and I didn't get home till about 10.30, so I sat down to read the newspaper. Kids are in bed. I hear little footsteps running down the hall. She runs around there in her little, little nightgown. She's not quite six. She sits down on my lap, puts her arms around me, hugs and kisses me, says, Daddy, I love you. I said, I love you too, Nancy. You're precious. She said, Daddy, you remember when you spanked me last night? Yeah. She said, didn't hurt. <laughs> didn't hurt. She said, but I learned my lesson. Now, what do you think I wanted to do? Hurt her or teach her a lesson? That's right. Teach her a lesson. Now, I'm going to show you what's called the natural law of consequences here in psychology in a little bit. And not doing that, not teaching that to your kids and being overly protective of them before they're six years old is why you've got all these teachers getting beaten up in classrooms. Why you've got all of this terrible lack of discipline in our schools today because the parents don't teach it at home. Now, I did that to my daughter because I loved her. My pastor said one, the reason you people don't spank your children is you don't love your kids because love suffereth long and when you spank them it hurts you more than does them. I think about it. All right, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled. By the way, every person in Dallas, Texas, or Houston, or anywhere in the United States or the world, today away from God, is guilty of the same sin of Adam and Eve. You know what it is? They want to be the God of their own life. They want to be the God of their own life. Now, you're not capable of being the God of your life, and I'm not either. We need God, and we need him a thousand times more, and he needs us. We don't have what it takes because of selfishness. So they sinned against God. So God came down in the cool of the evening. He said, Adam, Adam, where art thou? Now let's think about that. Where art thou? Now that's not a lesson in omniscience. He's, that isn't God coming down with a white cane and he's saying, Adam, where art thou? <laughs> you know what he's saying? What he's meaning there when he says, Adam, where art thou? He's saying, Adam, I got an explanation coming from you. What have you ever found wrong with me? 
What have you ever found wrong with me? Have I been hard? Have I been burdensome? Have I been oppressive? That you'd rebel against me and you wouldn't want to remain in my wonderful moral government? What have you found against me? Adam, I got an explanation coming. I got an explanation coming. And by the way, your parents got an explanation coming too. The way some of them denied themselves for you and the way you rebelled against them. And some of those things you haven't made right yet. You're not going to sleep right until you go back to old mom and dad. And make some of they got an explanation coming. I know when I got saved, I went back. Boy, I was busy making things right a long, long time. Oh, and it was good for me. It was good for me. Adam and Eve died that day. Now they didn't die. Physically, they died spiritually. Now watch. Now, can you read that? three kinds of death in the scriptures and you hear people forever getting them all mixed up. My dear friends, you'll never be the kind of a preacher, teacher, soul winner God until you get these straight in your mind. This is why St. Augustine said to teach the Bible is not a job for kids. To interpret is not a job for kids nor is it a job for the proud. So death means separated from or loosed from. Now, there's three kinds of death in the scriptures. Please don't get them mixed up. And I'm going to see in the next five minutes if you can really get these things straight in your mind. So death means separated from or loose from. The first kind of death is spiritual death. And Adam and Eve died the day they rebelled against a just and a loving and a tender-hearted creator. They died. They were separated from him. They went and hid, didn't they? It's a good thing they did. None of us would be here. So they were separated from God. They were loosed from him. Now, the second kind of death we see is a physical death. The scriptures call that a giving up the ghost. Otherwise, the spirit leaves the body. Now, it doesn't mean there's no more spirit nor no more body. It just means they're not within the same proximity. So the second kind of death is a physical death. Now, the third kind of death is, look at that, death to sin. Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? The grace may abound, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now quote that verse, only don't use the word death. Use the word, use the word, the, the, the definition of it. Now watch. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? The grace may abound, God forbid. How shall we that are loosed from sin live any longer therein? If you're loosed from it, how are you going to live in it? The greatest thing you'll know about grace is that sin will not have dominion over you. If sin has dominion over you, you're not in grace. You're under law yet. That's a characteristic of the age of grace. But now, let's think about this. Dead to sin. Paul said, Set your affections on things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now what kind of death is that? Let me quote again. 
Set your affections on things above, for Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What kind of death is that? Yes, death to sin. All right, turn your Bibles to John 5, 24. I want you to read this. I want you to tell me what kind of death this is. Till you get this straight, friends, you're going to have a lot of theological trouble. I knew of a church out in Los Angeles that a lot of them sprung up around the country teaching the people obeyed right, they'd never die. Trouble was, they didn't know physical death from spiritual death. <laughs> they would tell them they'd never die spiritually or physically. <laughs> Just, we're untaught. We're untaught. All right, someone read for us John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. All right, now what kind of death is that? Spiritual, Spiritual death. All right, if death then is separation from God, what is life? Reunion with God. Yeah, you get to, now life and death are opposites, aren't they? So what? What's the opposite of death here? Has passed from death unto what? Life. He's passed from separation from God unto what? Communion. A union with God. Christ said, I and you and you and me. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Not that it ought to be. It is. If it isn't, you aren't. When are we going to get away from preaching all this optional discipleship? The Bible knows nothing of optional discipleship says, a fountain cannot bring forth bitter water and sweet water at the same time. No man can serve two masters. He'll love one, he'll hate the other. Even in Romans 7, Paul is writing about when he was under conviction of sin but not converted. The Bible knows nothing, teaches nothing of optional discipleship. When are we going to really be, take studying seriously instead of go looking for things to justify our rebellion against God and our selfishness? Where's the victory in this kind of Christian Christianity? There isn't. There is no such thing as a Christianity without victory. Let me tell you something, dear friends. Christians not only ought to love God with all their heart, they do. You get that? Christians not only ought to love God with all their heart, they do. Now, what's the terrible inference with that? Can you tell me? Amen. That's a terrible inference, but it's true. It's true. So, now let's see if you really understood what I've been talking about here. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, Paul said, and Christ shall give thee light. What kind of death is that? Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. All right, now then tell me, what are the characteristics here of the spiritually dead? What can they do? Boy, now, each one of you are giving me one thing, and those are all good, but let's put them together. The spiritually dead can, what? What's that? What's that symbolic of? Here. If the spiritually dead can't hear, why preach? So first, they can hear. Second, they can reason, right? God invites us to come and reason with him. Third, they can what? Choose, that's right. They not only can choose, but then they can what? Carry out the choice. Yeah. But yet, St. Augustine said, 
Oh, you're born totally dead. Totally dead, but he had physical death mixed up with spiritual death. You see it now? So he said, God has to act upon you and give you life before he can choose him. And that's in Calvinism. So they make repentance subsequent to salvation and they make it optional because they don't understand the word death. Death in the scriptures. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. Now I heard a great evangelist. You'd all know the name if I mention it. And I don't mean to say anything against him personally. I think he's a holy man. I sat on a platform one on a lake, Indiana. He said, now you unsaved people out there, you're just like if we went over here to a mortuary and we brought a man in that's dead. He's in a casket. Can he comb his hair? No. Can he put on a new suit of clothes? No. Can he shave? No. Can he wash his face? No. That's the way you unsaved are. You're dead out there and you're trespassing your sin. Now, what's wrong with that illustration? It's as terrible as can be. It's terrible. He was comparing That's right. He was mixing apples and oranges. <laughs> and if it's that way, why preach? Right? I, th I hope later he's learned better than that. Listen, when God says he now commands all men everywhere to repent, that's plainly inferring and implying man has the ability to repent. Is that right? God can never command man to do things which he can't do and be a just God. But he is just. That's why Paul could say, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Not, not that he ought to repent, but he must repent. Okay, now, let's see if you can use this now. When it says, let the dead bury the dead, I'm working on a very, very wealthy man in the United, uh, here in the United States. I, he retains me on a yearly basis to advise him and technical and financial. Very, very wealthy man. And I got a set of tapes for him from George Otis that he puts these in his Mercedes when he drives in from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, whether he's driving into Chicago, whether he's driving to Rockford, Illinois. He sits there and he listens to these tapes, which are simple reading of the New Testament. So one day he said, come on, we got to go to lunch. Uh, listen, I, I got to ask you some questions. So we go to lunch. I say, what's the question, John? He says, Hey, I'm listening to that tape this morning. It says, let the dead bury the dead. <laughs> How can the dead bury the dead? <laughs> well, and I said, John, uh, you've got to realize three kinds of death in the scriptures. Physical death, spiritual death, right? Christian is what? Dead to sin. Dead to sin. Separated from it. Loose from it. They should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people in or from from. All right, so what's this saying? What's this saying? Now, come on now. Come on, what's he teaching here? What would you say? Is he right? Would you let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead? All right, now. My dear friends, you're going to take that literal? If you do, then no mortician can be a Christian. Is that right? 
So, what you said is right. But what God says and what he means, that's what you got to get. Like, for instance, when he said to Adam, Adam, where art thou? Didn't he know where he was? Of course he did. What he's asking is, Adam, where's my explanation? Now with this, now watch. What he is saying is, as our brother has said, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. But what does he mean? Here's what he means. Jesus asked this young man to come and follow him. So he starts giving him excuses. Oh, I gotta go bury old Aunt Hester or someone. <laughs> I've known people like this, or some guys that I've had work for me, when their uncle dies, they're off from work two weeks. Yeah, those same guys don't take a coffee break, they take a furrow. <laughs> I'm gonna invent a work break one of these days and patent it. <laughs> but what does he mean? Here's what he means to that young man. Now listen, young man, I don't want any excuses, alibis, or delays. Get busy. That's what he means. It isn't that God doesn't mean for us to pay respect to the dead, of course. That's just a matter of good, good manners, good bringing up. But what he's to show you and me is that this idea and this ability that we have and this calling to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is to not, is to not take second place to anything. It's to be supreme in our life, that he deserves the best in our life. And we, he doesn't want any of your excuses, alibis, and delays. It's too important. There's too much hanging upon your ministry. You get what I'm saying? But unless you really understand the word dead, death, and the meanings where it is used. Like, for instance, Jesus said, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What is darkness? Darkness is a lack of understanding. Didn't you ever try to teach somebody something? They say, oh, I'm still in the dark. Of course. Well, they still don't understand. So Jesus said, he that followed me shall not walk in darkness. He's not going to walk in ignorance. Because he's his people. But he shall have the light of life, which means the understanding of life. The understanding of it. And you can't understand it any more than to let be in happy submission to Jesus Christ and put the serving of him first in your life. And no excuses, alibis, or delays. Do you see it now? Now we saw this. But now, my dear friends, when man sinned against our great and wonderful and holy and tender-hearted God, he died. He was separated from God. He's loosed from God. The further man got from the garden, the more they lost that right attitude and that right disposition of heart. They lost it. And one day, God, in his mercy, said to Moses, Now, come on up here, Moses. We'll just put it down in writing how they ought to act. See? The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new what? It's a new creation, new creature. Old things passed away. Here's what happens at conversion. God begins to create that right attitude and disposition of heart back into you that Adam and Eve lost. You see it? <laughs> so this is why now then we can look at the law a little bit different. And you're going to find the real, the real Christian, he doesn't have problems of breaking the law of God. He's living above the law of God. And he's not grinding it 
at it. He's keeping it without even being aware of it because he's a new creation in Christ. And he's got a right attitude and a disposition of heart toward God and toward his fellow man. You get this? And if that hasn't been recreated in you, brother, you've never been to Calvary. You've never been to Calvary. But let's get back here. So man lost this. He lost it. God does something different about heaven than he did about this creation. You know, he made this creation, he put man into it, and man boogered it all up, didn't he? Messed it all up. Now, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I am, there you may be also. But let me tell you this, he gets the new creations ready right down here before he puts them in up there. And if you're messing up this one, you're not going to get that one. Like I've told bankers, who couldn't let you in up there, you'd be digging up the streets trying to hide them somewhere. You get what I'm saying? These are serious things. Serious. Ah. Deuteronomy 5.27 says this. Go near Moses and hear all that the Lord our God shall say unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. My, they knew things about God without the Old Testament that the New Testament believers don't know with the New Testament and the Old Testament. They knew God was so right, so reasonable, so wonderful that he'd never give them any commandment they couldn't do. Now please turn your Bible, if you will, to Deuteronomy 6.24. Would you please read that? Deuteronomy 6.24. Then we're going to look into Deuteronomy 10.12 and 13. Who will be kind enough to read for us Deuteronomy 6.24? I want you all to follow along as this is read. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. Is there any particular phrase, my friend, jumps out at you from that passage? For our good. For our good. Let me tell you something, dear friends. I had a daddy that was tougher than a quarter state. But let me tell you, he was also gentle. He was fair. I don't care how tough people are if they're fair. And my daddy, I was raised in a machine shop. I started running the lathes and drill presses when I was 12 years of age. I first started on the broom. I wore more brooms than I did tool bits for a long time. But then my daddy would take me off the broom and take me over and he'd give me some very tough jobs. He'd say, son, I want you to make some piston rings. Now you give a 13-year-old lad a job to make piston rings. But you know what he would do? He'd stand there and he'd show me how to do it. He'd stand there and here he had a lot of people working for him, but he'd act like I was the only person in the whole world. Then he later said, I want you to make cylinder heads. And he'd take me and he'd stand there and he'd lecture to me and he'd take the knowledge out of his head and he'd put it in my little old fat head. And he'd take the skill from his hands and try to redevelop that skill into my hands. Did you know something? He never gave me anything to do. No matter how difficult it was, but what he'd enable me to do, and he'd stand there and he'd show me how to do it. He'd show me how to do it. Now, do you think my, my earthly daddy was more right and more reasonable than the God of heaven? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ? I should say not. Now he says, that which I command thee this day for thy good. Now when you begin to look at the law of God, dear friends, here's the way you should look at it. 
When you drive up over a hill on a two-lane highway, around a curve, what do you see in the middle of the road uh, there painted? What kind of line? There's two lines. There's a dotted line, and what's the other one? A solid yellow line. Now, what does that yellow line mean to you? Don't cross. Why? Is it just because it's against the law? No. Oh, 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 for your protection, huh? For your good, right? How about for those people's good coming over the hill toward you? How about for those riding with you? How about those behind you? Now, if you're driving your Jaguar, your Duster, your Camaro, or maybe you got one of those Hitler's Revenges, now, when you go up there and you see that, now you don't get mad at that yellow line, do you? And say, oh, this governor of the state of Texas and State Highway Department, they're inhibiting me. They're not letting me get the most out of this. Do you? You don't think like that, do you? Not if you've got all your ball bearings, you don't. No, you look at that yellow line and you say, that's for my good. I'm going to stay on my side. That's for those people's good back there. That's the way the wonderful law of God is. Did you know that? The first four of the Ten Commandments are between ourselves and God, and the last six are horizontal between one another. And he says that I might preserve you alive as it is at this day. Now, please read in your Bible, if you will, please, Deuteronomy 10, the 12th and 13th verses. And you're going to see that the way man looks at the law of God is not the way the Bible looks at it at all. Not the way that it looks at it at all. We look at it as hard and burdensome and oppressive. No, 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 no. They're reading something else, but they're not reading the Bible. Maybe reading Augustinian philosophy or Calvinistic theology. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. Who will be kind enough to read it? Now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of you? But to do the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Is there any particular phrase that comes out at you there? <laughs> for thy good. For thy good. Not oppressive, not burdensome, not hard, not rigid. But it's for your good that he might preserve your life. All right, now watch, dear friends. Law. Please notice up there the top word. It's law. Moral law. There's two kinds of laws we saw yesterday. Physical laws, and that's all science is. It's so all chemistry, medicine is studying physical law. Now we're getting into moral law. Now a physical law is a rule of action. A moral law is a rule for action. It's what we ought to do, not necessarily what we do do. Now, please notice now that under the word law, I also have another word. What is it? Responsibilities. Responsibilities, responsibilities God gives us in this life are just like moral laws. What are the moral laws? What are they saying? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. If you sow under righteousness, look at the good consequences you get. Who's it up to what man gets? It's up to us. Is it up to God? No. Now, my friends, I want you to look at this. Law, underneath it, are sanctions. Or consequences. My dear friends, when we choose an act, we also choose the consequences. We choose the primary consequences and there are also long-term, what we call secondary consequences. Now let me give you a very vivid illustration of this, an example. 
When I was president of the W.A. Whitney Corporation, I got a lot of men out of the penitentiaries and reformatories, and I don't mean over the wall. <laughs> I had a black preacher come to me one day, and he said, Brother Khan, do you believe in being merciful? I said, Brother Salter, I'd better, because someday I'm going to need mercy in front of God, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is not optional, friends. I was telling someone the other day, there's two traits you never find missing in a Christian. They give and they forgive. It's like a happy marriage. There's two bears, bear and forebear. <laughs> it really is. So I said, why do you ask me? He said, Brother Khan, there's a black lad from my church. He made parole three years ago. He's in for manslaughter. Made it three years ago and he can't get out. Nobody will give him a job. Would you have mercy upon him? I said, sit down, my brother, and tell me about him. So he told me about him, and I said, yes, uh, I'll have mercy. And so I signed the papers for him to get out. By the way, he came out, went to work for us, was a marvelous employee. About three months later, I led him to Christ over there in the factory. And I'll tell you, he, he was just a tremendous fellow for us. Now, I did that for lots of people, but I wish I could stop right there with my friend Jim Box and let it go at that. But from then on, my, my batting average just went down to about, it looked like somebody played on the Cubs. About 096. I was having trouble batting my weight. I'd get them out of the penitentiary, and one month they'd be right back. Right back in the slammer, back in the big house. Then it dawned on me, well, Harry, don't get any more of mine unless they will agree to come in and sit down in your office and let you teach them this. So I told our vice president of poor and public relations, <laughs> I said, now, John, we don't get any more of mine unless they're willing to come in and sit down in my office. Let me take two or three hours with them. Let me teach them how they're put together because they may have gotten into the penitentiary the first time out of sheer ignorance and meanness, but if they get into it after I'm done with it, they're going to have to claw, crawl over their intelligence and crawl over the wall. Get that? Going to have to crawl over their intelligence to get over that wall. So I'd bring them in, and I'd sit down, and I'd show them like this, that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. Is that right? I'm sitting there one day with this man. You should have seen him. He'd been a very, very handsome man, but now he looked hard as granite, tough. He spent 18 of the last 20 years in penitentiaries. Now, I began to teach him this, and only I had drawn it out on a counting ledger type paper about that long, about that wide. And I had this all written out there, and I was explaining it to him. And he told me, out of the 18 of the last 20 years, he said, Mr. Kahn, between my last two semesters, I think you know what a semester is. He said, I was out here in Rockford 125 nights. I sat on a bar stool 124 nights. And back I went. I said, well, I said, I'm not your father confessor, but as a little theological research, would you mind telling me why in heaven's name would anybody want to throw their life away sitting in those miserable upholstered sewers? That's what we call them in New York City. Nightclubs and taverns are upholstered sewers. I said, I didn't do that before I was a Christian. It's so rotten and filthy and all that miserable talk. That I just can't, I can't comprehend it. Would you mind telling me why you would go sit on a bar stool 124 nights? 
He said, yes. And he put his finger on this top one over here at the left. Can you read it? What does it say? Guilt. Guilt. He said, that one right there. And then, friends, he began to sob. He began to cry. Here's a hardened criminal that's been in for assault and battery, for mugging, strong arm, everything. You name it, man, he had done it. And there he sat in my office. He's weeping and he's sobbing like a baby. Tears running down his face like a creek. So I just let him sit there, and when he calmed down, I said to him, now, you don't have to, friend. You want to tell me about it? He said, yes. He says, that one right there, and he put his finger on guilt. He said, Mr. Kahn, 20 years ago in California, I walked away from a wonderful wife and four children. I magnanimously gave her $200 to raise my kids. I deserted her. Now, the dear old liberal state of California never arrested him, never did anything, never put him in jail. But do you think he got away with it, friends? No. He said, I sure didn't. See, California doesn't love their people out there because they let them get away with anything. See, they're California. They don't love. And they got such watered-down types of Christianity out there, you can get away with anything, still think you're a Christian. It's just watered down. It's the toughest place in the world to preach is California. And I know I've preached around the world. I've been doing it for 35 years because they got such a watered-down type of Christianity. And I'll show you, they don't really love the people in California. They let them get away with anything. You're not loving people when you do that. So he said, Mr. Khan, I'd go into taverns to drown that guilt. Okay, I'd spend all my money. I'd say, wait a minute, the next morning, was the guilt gone? He said, no, it was greater, bigger. So he'd be broke. So he'd go out, and he'd mug, he'd strong arm, he'd break and enter, he'd do all this to get more money to go to the taverns to drown his guilt. To drown his guilt. Now let me ask you a simple question. Did he get away from walking away from that wonderful woman? Did he get away with it? Well, he wasn't put in jail for it. Did California, the state of California, really love him? No, they didn't. If they'd arrested him, given him five years in a pokey, he might have gotten out of his system. I say he might. But no. They let him get away with that, and here it messed up 20 years of his life, his kid's life, and everything about it. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. When are we going to start telling this to people? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. This is the way man's put together, that when he does things, it affects him. It affects him. He cannot get away from it. Now, let me give you an example, another one. The night after Martin Luther King was assassinated, my wife and two daughters, and I had wonderful in-laws. They lived in Florida at that time. My father-in-law was a godly old Quaker man. I mean a Quaker that had quaked. And that's where they get the word from, quaked. They trembled in their services, in the presence of God. If there's any sin, you really quaked. They weren't there to make a racket. They were there to think and to be in the presence of God. Well, he was a godly man. I thank God for my father-in-law many times. So I wasn't feeling very good, and my wife and two daughters and a little neighbor girl started to drive to Florida. Martin Luther King assassinated the night before, so I went in. The radio is playing. Now, it's a very rare thing in our house that a radio is ever playing and blaring very loud because we're not trying to escape from anything. <laughs> See, people with radios blaring around the house are trying to escape from themselves. We're not. You got all that blaring sound, but other you need a trip to the altar. So I'm going in there, and for once I heard the radio. And it was saying, 
to blacks were burning down Chicago, Indianapolis, Louisville, Atlanta, and those were places where my daughters had to drive with my wife right past him. I got down on my knees and prayed for them to have a safe journey. But then I began to pray for my black brothers. I got a lot of precious black brothers. I really have. I began to pray for them. And here's what I was praying. I said, oh, dear God, I would that you'd let me put this chart every 50 miles in the United States so you couldn't be anywhere without seeing this in the air, about 100 feet high, 100 miles high, with a letter so big, everybody could read it. Because my black brothers now, they're going to be burning down buildings and things, and they're not going to get arrested. They're not going to get put in jail, but I know they're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. And my, how I pray for my black friends. Well, let me tell you something. Within 24 hours of the time I'm praying, in the city of Chicago, and I live 90 miles from downtown Chicago, but in, within 24 hours of the time I'm praying, there were some black lads, they had race riots in Chicago, and they're coming down the street. In this four-door car, the window's down, in the back seat is a man, a teenager with a rifle. It's loaded, and he knew it was loaded. Do you think he knew he had the responsibility of keeping this under control? He sure did. He went by a street corner, and had about 30 people on him. There are blacks and whites there. They're all huddled together, wanting to get out of this area. Wherever you're in an area where they're having a race riot, the only wise thing to do is get out of there get out of there. The blacks and whites, the wise ones will both get out. So they're all standing there kind of protecting one another waiting for the bus. As this car went by this street corner, this lad in the back seat took that gun and he aimed right in the middle of this crowd and he pulled the trigger. He didn't aim at anyone particular but he just shot in there promiscuously. He hit a little girl, 10 years of age, shot her right through the head. She dropped dead. You want to know who it was? His own precious little sister. Unpracious sister. Now, I want to ask you a question. He never was arrested for that, but I want to ask you another question. Do you think he got away with it? No. Do you think he got away with it? I should say he did not. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. He got guilt, he got depression, and let me tell you something. Within 10 days, that black lad was a stark raving, screaming, psychotic maniac in Dunning State Hospital, and he's there to this day. Now, I don't doubt that boy had been to church maybe a lot of times. Who had ever taught him that when you choose an act due to the way God has created man, you also choose the consequences, primary and secondary, that go along with that act. My dear wife, she has a habit of, when she and I are gone, she has our papers, daily papers saved. When we get back, she'll read them all. Now, I, I can't quite get excited about reading a week old newspaper. Well, I'm with her. I'm lecturing in Oklahoma City. We get back to Chicago. Saturday, I'm sitting there reading a paper, and I'm reading about my dear black brother, Charles Joseph. Charles worked for me in the summertime as a writer. He taught fast-track English in our schools. Best English teacher in the city. We're the second largest city in Illinois. Has a lovely black wife. My daughter Nancy went to fifth grade to Linda Joseph. My friend Charles put an ad in her Oxford paper. 
said, I want an apartment on the northeast side of Rockford. So he got 100 answers to his ad for an apartment. He called them up, 99 of them, and said, I'm, can I come and look at your apartment? They said, yes. He said, well, I should tell you, my wife and I, were black. Will that make a difference? 99 of them said yes, and they slammed their phone down. Tell you, when I read this, friend, I wanted to cry. He went to the, called the 100th one. He said, we're black. Can I come and take a look at it? And the man said, yes, come ahead. Charles went and looked at it, and it was a pigsty. So dirty, filthy people that had kids that they didn't know how to raise kids, let them tear everything up. Let me tell you something, dear friends. When you, when you get children your own and you don't have enough sense to teach your kids when they go to somebody else's houses, not put their hands on the walls, not lean on the walls, and not tear places up, then you ought to keep them home. Keep them home. You've got that responsibility to the people that you visit. You've got that responsibility to your kids to teach them right. I taught my kids, they could take them anywhere, they didn't pull things off of here, and they learned the meaning of one word. And you know what it was? No! When I said no, they knew I meant it. If they went ahead, they got the consequences. Now, that's all there is to it. But I have missionaries bring their kids to our house, and my wife and I have traveled and... Beside a black person, you're too good for God's heaven, you're not going to make it. Is that right? About time somebody start preaching like this and not make it optional? Yeah. yeah. It is an optional. This is it. When are we going to get away from this watered-down sort of a Christianity? You can obey God or not obey God. This, I call it cafeteria Christianity. Pick out what you want. And I told him that morning after I explained this. I said, listen, just by virtue of the natural law of consequences, you won't let that black brother live beside you. Oh, I know the value of your property is going to go down. I know that. Before I moved from where I lived, I only moved three blocks away. We had an ultra-liberal cross the street from me. He was going to move, and I went over. I said, Don, I understand you're going to move. He said, yes. I said, if you want to sell your, your property to a black brother, that'll be fine with me. You'll get no problem out of me, and I'll be right over here helping him. He said, well, Brother Harry, do you know what it's going to do to value your property? I said, of course I do. That's part of being a Christian. I counted the cost a long time ago. That's a part of it. That's a part of it, and I've never shrunk back from it. That's a part of it. Of course I know that. How old do you think I am? And then here's what I said to them. Get this. If you're too good to rent to a black brother, you deserve to have your property burned down as a natural consequence of not loving your brother. Now, that doesn't give the black brother the right to burn it down. He'll suffer the consequences of it, too. But if you don't love your black brother, for heaven's sake, why send missionaries to him? Oh, I admit, I've gotten in a lot of trouble preaching like this. I've had them wait outside the church to beat me up. I've said, go ahead. I come from a family of 11 kids. I've never been beaten up. <laughs> <laughs> I've been docked down as many as 12 times in one little deal. <laughs> My friends, if we don't stand for what's right, we don't stand for anything. And if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for any old goofy little type of Christianity that comes down the line. We'll get you to do this. Do you get that? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Now, I want you to notice the difference between this one and the one that we had up there. Now watch. 
Watch very closely. When a man gets enlightened, he's over here. He sees this. But he wants over here when he gets any sense. But you don't get from here over to there by force of resolution. You know how you get from here over to there? Let me show you. It's right here. There it is. There it is, the cross of the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't you dare come to that cross for forgiveness of sins unless you're willing to be transformed. Because he has no way to forgive a sinner without transforming him. Everybody wants to be forgiven. Who wants to be transformed? Listen, whenever you preach that Jesus died to forgive you your sin without transforming you, you've got a half-baked gospel. You don't know what it's all about. You need to get back to the books to find out what Christianity is all about. We've had too much of that kind of preaching now. It's going around offering forgiveness without offering transformation. It's a package deal. And I'll tell you, when you get into the cross right, the cross later will become a roadblock, roadblock in your life to future sin. You get that? A roadblock in your life to future sin. So, dear friends, you don't only come here just for forgiveness, but you come here for forgiveness and to be transformed with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now this becomes as normal and as natural to you as this was over here. You don't have to grind at this. This becomes your very nature because of any man being Christ. What? New nature. And then he begins to be doing it so many times it becomes your nature. And that's what you call the divine nature of Christ. So that becomes normal. It becomes natural. But there's no cause and effect. What do you see up there in the top? Can you read it? The upper, the right hand. Do you see any causation here? <laughs> it's the truth of the blessed gospel. The holy men of old gave their lives for it. That you and I might have it in this blessed book. The truth of it. To show us that sin is stupid and ridiculous and illogical and unphilosophical. And get us to come to Jesus for forgiveness and transformation and enlightenment of our poor little minds. Because if you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. You'll have the understanding. You'll have the enlightenment of life. Don't tell me the people of God ought to be ignoramuses. No, no, I refuse to believe that. When you get fused together with the great God, you get submerged into him. That's what it means, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Fused together, submerged into. That's the real meaning of the Greek. Don't tell me when you get fused together with him, you're going to act more ridiculous. No, you're going to act more intelligent. You're going to act more loving. You're going to act more kind. And what Jesus bleeds over, that's what you'll bleed over. And what Jesus hates, that's what you'll hate. And what Jesus loves, that's what you're going to love. You're going to be in there up to your elbows, doing what he would do if he could be back here again. Not ought to, you will be. If you haven't had a screwy interpretation of the gospel preached to you. Half-baked, if you will. So how's it done in moral government? Truth, the truth of the gospel. The love of Christ. Show unto us on Calvary. And if that doesn't subdue your rebellious heart, there is no remedy for your rebellious heart in all the universe. No penitentiary, no jail ever subdues a rebellious heart. The only cure for that's the love of Christ shown on Calvary. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. That we through his poverty might be rich in spirit. We thus conclude then if all were dead, Christ died for all, because all were dead. But that we which live should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto who? Unto him who loved us and gave himself for us. So, the love of Christ. Persuasion of preaching and teaching. Then the influence of the Holy Ghost and the godly influence of parents and other Christian people.
You get that? We can't be a causation, but we can sure be a battering ram of an influence. When my poor mother got saved, I'll tell you, my daddy owned the only factory in town amount of anything. I was telling them one of Billy Graham's assistants about this. She and I wept all the way to the airport Sunday from Rockford. I was telling her about my mother's conversion. And what a great big change it took place. See, we had a little sister named Lois that was killed when she was seven and it broke my mother's heart. My mother would put us to bed and then take a handkerchief to her voice, to her throat, to, to her. There was a whimper in her voice. Walk around that little Indiana town. This night she walked by a storefront mission. Storefront mission. She heard what I've heard very seldom in my life. See, my daddy had been a symphony musician and conductor for him at my mother. He wanted to settle down. He met her and she played the piano and the organ in a little country church when she was 16, but she didn't know the Lord. And this layman would walk out there 10, 15 miles every Sunday night to preach and walk back. She never forgot that man's devotion to Christ. My mama walked by this storefront mission. She's brokenhearted and she hears a, what I call a sanctified piano player. I've only heard about seven to eight of them in all my preaching in 35 years. Boy, when you hear one of them, there's a begin to tug, it begins to hear. The old songs is high and begin to come alive. And my mother stood out there and listened and it just drew her. There was a rapport there. She went in and she sat down in this little storefront mission. She heard, listen to this. She heard about the bomb in Gilead. You know about the bomb in Gilead? This is what we need to take to the world that can heal the broken heart. Can heal the sin sick soul. My mother sat there and listened to this. She said, that's what I need. She went to an old fashioned altar and in an old fashioned way. She did something you kids haven't heard about you, but you better get next to. She prayed her way through. <laughs> no, none of this except Jesus stuff. That comes from a false view of the atonement. Comes from that old payment theory, that old Catholic idea. She stayed there until something happens. By the way, I never heard to accept Jesus' gospel until I was 30 years old. And I wondered why the difference was between those people and the ones I'd, I'd seen as a youngster. Prayed her way through. She came home with the glory of God in her soul. You'd have thought my daddy would have hugged her and patted her and consoled her. He did not. He but killed her. Not once. Many times. They built a little stucco church. That group did at that net storefront mission. My mama began to take in washing to help pay for that church. And they got it paid for. My mama supported the missionary full-time above her tithe with a washboard. God resisteth the proud, doesn't he? How many of you women would have taken in washings for the gospel's sake? God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the lowly. See, that's the kind of heritage. I was raised around that kind of woman years later when I'm in university, and they told me there was no Jesus, historical Jesus. I said, oh, buddy, you don't know what you're talking about. You've never been to my home. You never knew Sherman Fife. You never knew Johnny Jones. You never knew that sanctified piano player, Gertrude. By the way, I was preaching down here in Houston in Evangelistic Temple for Brother Austin Wilkerson. I told about my mother's conversion, that sanctified piano player who was only 19 years old at the time. And you know what? After the service, she came walking right up to me out of that audience. 
And we had the greatest hugging match you ever saw. And we stood there and cried like a couple of babies. See, girls? Just be what Jesus would have you to be. So that's the problem. Not where in this world, what you are. Where you're at is what counts. If he can get us to be what we ought to be, then with God from then on, it's a matter of geography. <laughs> Do you get that? Now, my mama was only an influence, not a causation. And I'll tell you, she sure induced a lot of hunger and thirst around the place. And that's what God's looking for. People that will obey him and love him. Not to get to heaven, but because he deserves to be loved and served and obeyed. And you love your fellow man because you see they're of equal value you are. You see that they're made in the image of God. They're important. They're valuable. And so through moral government. It's not causation. No, it can't be. Because he's free. He's accountable. He's responsible. He can think. He can reason. So in moral government, God lays it all out in front of us and says, what do you want? What do you want? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The word that are the consequences. Of now, I can go ahead and give you a lot more on this, but tomorrow morning we'll take up right where we've left off. Would you dismiss this, my dear brother?